So what I would like to do this morning is, is a reading of five, uh, five passages in Hebrews. Um, and I want to look at you with you at five, five aspects of Jesus as our high priest. Before I go any further, let me pause and pray. So God, as you have in your word through your servant Zechariah, as you have declared that one day the Messiah will not only be king but our priest, would you in these next moments by your gracious Holy Spirit teach us about Jesus and this aspect of his priesthood. And may we who um, know Jesus, may we walk out of here this morning informed and encouraged that you have appointed for us such a great high priest. In his name we pray. Amen. So this is a little different this morning. We're going to walk through a few different passages in Hebrews. And the first this morning is found in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And as you're turning there to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, I want to briefly give you a little bit of the background to the book of Hebrews We don't know who the human author is. There's been a lot of debate over that. Some argue Paul. The the reality is we don't know. And it is absolutely fitting because in this letter, Jesus is lifted up and set before us as absolutely supreme. And it is so fitting in a book where the majesty and the singular glory of Christ is set before us that we wouldn't even know who the human author is. It is a letter written mostly to primarily to Jewish believers who are struggling because they are being persecuted. They started believing that Jesus was the Messiah and their great king, but years have passed and he hasn't returned. And they have suffered terribly as Jews because of their belief that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And one of the things that is uh, discouraging them, and, and doubtless one of the reasons why they are persecuted is because Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth seems so ordinary, so plain. After all, he was crucified by the Romans. He was a mere man. He doesn't seem that majestic or grand. And the author of Hebrews, ultimately the Holy Spirit, is showing from the pages of Old Testament scripture how Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all the Messianic promises, but in particular, how Jesus is greater than the angels. These Jewish believers were tempted to be worldly. They were tempted to be enamored with the world, just like we are. And they were tempted to have a a religious form of it. In other words, they were tempted to set their hopes in the here and now and along with it still be kind of religious. Does that sound familiar at all? We live in an extremely worldly culture, a a culture that's just filled with promises of what here and now can deliver to you in terms of entertainment, in terms of pleasure, in terms of hope, in terms of technological advancements, in terms of money and what it can buy, in terms of of pleasure, and so forth and so on. We, we live in a very worldly, here and now focused culture, and the culture is 
interestingly, very spiritual interested, interested in witchcraft, interested in various New Age religions, interested, interestingly, in angels, interested, interestingly, in angels. And that was true back in the days when this letter was first written. And it's understandable why they might have been overly impressed with angels. Angels are awesome beings, as we've even learned in Zechariah. But Hebrews was written to turn their, the gaze and the eyes of their heart away from being impressed about angels and to take them away from the temptation of this world and to fix their minds and their hearts' affection on the singular glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And in particular, Jesus as our high priest. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, first of all, this morning, we learn that Jesus is a perfectly able and merciful high priest. A perfectly able and merciful high priest. I'm going to try to give you some summaries for the spaces of those of you who take notes. But I want to say up front, in each of these passages we're going to read, I hope you notice that it's such as the glory and the multifaceted nature of who Jesus is that attempts to summarize are always disappointing. <laughs> I, just, I just say that up front. So you can, you can take notes, but I really want you to savor the words we are about to read. So let's begin our, our reading this morning in chapter 2, verse 14. And we'll read through verse 18. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus himself, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. One of the stumbling blocks for these Hebrew men and women, these Jewish believers, was the humanity of Jesus. It was a stumbling block. Uh, they, they knew from the scriptures that God was great, and they knew from the scriptures that angels are great, but they struggled with the weakness and the frailty and the humanity of the incarnate Son of God. But here, the Holy Spirit, the ultimate author of Hebrews, reminds us that unless the eternal Son of God, one with the Father, humbled himself and took to himself true human nature, became a man, we would have no access to God. We would not have a high priest who is well-suited for our need. What does a priest do? Some of you are, are, 
have a background maybe in Roman Catholicism and you have an idea of what priests do. Some of you have no background in, in Roman Catholicism and so you're, you're a little nervous about this language of priesthood and, and you need to kind of get over that, if I can say it that directly, because Jesus is a priest and if you're a believer, you're a priest. So you, you really got to get comfortable with that. So what does a priest do? The high priest in particular has two main functions. He, or if you summarize it this way, he's a go-between. The high priest is a go-between between God and between sinful men and women. He represents sinful men and women to holy God, and he represents holy God to sinful men and women. He is a mediator. And here in verses 14 through 18, there's, there's, there's so many wonderful truths here. I love the mission of Jesus, that he came to render powerless the devil. It's awesome. But in particular, this morning, I want to draw your attention to the fact, verse 17, that because Jesus is our high priest, he had to be made a man. Why? Because if he was not a man who lived on this earth, like where we live, we would have no assurance that we have a mediator who understands us, and we would be so utterly terrified that we would give up hope. The assumption here of Hebrews is that of all scripture, that God is awesome in his holiness. The the book of Hebrews does nothing to tone down the holiness of God. In fact, later at the end, where the main application of, of stirring us up to be faithful, we are reminded that our God is a consuming fire. I say it again and again and again. But the good news, the gospel of the Bible is not that God has changed. For God cannot change. He is still holy as he ever has been. But what God does is he changes our relationship to him in and through Christ. And ultimately God in and through Christ changes us. But Jesus is a perfect high priest. He's, He's perfectly able. He's able to function in that role. That's the key here. He's able to carry out that role of of representing us before God, praying on our behalf, interceding with holy God on our behalf because he's one of us. And what's emphasized here is he, he can, he as a man, we know that he identifies with us. We can know because he lived and walked where we live that he knows what it's like to live and walk where we live and walk. There's no way, I I assure you, there is no way that any one of us would dare enter into the holy throne of God, before the holy throne of God. No way. Some of you might say, oh, yeah, I would. Yeah, I would. (laughs) No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Not the, not the throne that's represented in the Bible. Not the throne that Daniel saw with the ancient of days. Not the, the scene that John the Apostle saw. 
No, you, you, you are crying out with Isaiah, woe is me for I am undone, and then you're turning and running the other way. There's no way that you or I, there's no way I would have prayed as I did this morning. I, 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 did you notice I was, I was a little bold? Where do I get off? Is that personality? That is not, no. I'm only, the only way I'm doing that, praying so boldly, is because of what God has revealed in and through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the only ground we have. It's not courage. It's not personality. It's Christ and Christ alone. And the reason why we are able to go before God's throne of grace and pray so boldly is because we have such an able and merciful high priest. Verse 18, he was tempted in that which he has suffered. He is, since he was, himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Isn't that awesome? He was tempted and without sin, as we'll see. He did not sin. And the age-old argument, was it possible for him to sin? No. But nonetheless, his temptation was a true temptation. He was a real man, not a kind of man, not a, not a sort of man. He was a real man. So that when the devil, for example, met him in the wilderness after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and had not eaten anything, he's a real man and he's really hungry and he's really thirsty. He really is weak. When he's sleeping on the boat, he's not faking. He's actually exhausted. He's tired. When he's sleeping, he's a man, really sleeping. When he's eating, he's a real man, really eating. When he's thirsty, he's a real man who's really thirsty. This is our Savior, our Lord. So far from being disqualifying, his humanity qualifies him to be a merciful and faithful high priest. When we are struggling, as all of us will as Christians, to live the Christian life, as we are struggling ourselves against temptation, as we deal with guilt of our reality of our failures, as we look to the future and we wonder how it is that we're going to be able to pass through whatever trials that God has for us, this is our comfort that we have a high priest always interceding for us with the Father who knows what it's like to live where we live. He knows what it's like to deal with the people we deal with. I mean, we see that with him with the disciples. And, and if he could be merciful with them, that means he could be merciful with us. So Jesus is a perfectly able and merciful high priest. I hope you see that as precious about your Lord. I hope you cherish his deity and you worship him. And I hope you cherish his humanity and you worship him. You cannot ever say, believer, no one knows what it's like. You can't because he does. He does. It's true, others may not, but he does. And we'll see that more in just a moment. Our next passage I want to look at together is in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. So we're just, we're just learning about our high priest this morning. First, he is able and a merciful high priest. Secondly, he is a faithful high priest over God's house. Faithful over God's house. 
Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. So we are being exhorted here to hold fast our confession and our confidence in Jesus Christ. We are being encouraged to boast of the hope of the gospel of the kingdom of God forever with Christ. But here we are especially taught that Jesus is a faithful high priest. He doesn't waver. Uh, Moses was, what is the house that's being referred to here? It is uh, the tabernacle for Moses was the, the house is representative of the worship of God. And it took place physically at the tabernacle in the days of Israel coming out of Egypt. Of course, the people of Israel were meant to be God's people in that sense, his house. But it's the emphasis here is on the worship of God. And we here are the church. We are called the house, the tabernacle of the temple of God. We are the house of God's worship. We are for God's praise. And Jesus is the builder of the house. So he is the one who is building this house called the church, which is to the praise of the Father. And he is also overseeing, actively overseeing the worship. You might put it this way, Jesus, as our high priest, is the faithful chief worship leader. He is the primary worship leader. I wonder if you thought of Jesus in that way. We often think in these days, when we think of worship leader, most churches, and I, I, it's, it's not you know, terrible, I understand, but they often think of just the guy who leads the music, and that is an aspect of the worship. But, for example, in our worship service, I mean, our worship together began the minute, the second, that you started meeting with each other. You are the house. Even your fellowship when you came in the door and your greeting of one another. You weren't just greeting people from, you know, Chichester and Epsom and Barnstead and wherever you're from. You were meeting blood-bought inheritors of the kingdom of God. You were meeting fellow priests of the living God. You were meeting to assemble and to come together to testify to his faithfulness to you this past week and this past year. You were coming to greet one another in the name of the Lord of lords and King of kings. So our worship at together began the minute and the second that you started. And then it began as we prepared our hearts to, to worship. And it began as we were singing and so forth. That's just our assembled worship. Of course, we worship God, are to worship God all the time, and even in the way that we live. Jesus is the one overseeing all that. Jesus is the chief worship leader. He is the faithful high priest overseeing the worship of God. 
and he's faithful. Uh, I wish wish I could say that about, uh, I want to be faithful, I I hope I am faithful, but what I mean is, is, no man can say that every any pastor or any man who's responsible for leading the worship of God can ever say that he is perfectly faithful all the time. But Jesus is. Men get tired, sick, have allergies, voices break, that kind of thing. Sometimes pastors even, their hearts aren't in it as much as they should be. Pastors are just like you, just, just men. But not, that's not true of Jesus. His heart is always in it. His heart is always a flame for the praise of his Father and our Father. He is always faithfully tending the worship of God. He is always working to stir us up. He is giving gifts to the church to help us in our worship. He's teaching and admonishing, instructing us, even through the reading and teaching and preaching of his word. Jesus is head of the house. He is the chief worship leader. He is our faithful high priest. He is faithful over God's house, whose house we are. Interesting that in our study in Zechariah, we learned that the high priest, Jesus, in the last days in the kingdom will rebuild the millennial temple. And that's just in keeping with his role. He is our king and he is our high priest. And he is the one who prepares us, qualifies us, fits us to worship God. He's a marvelous high priest in that way. And I will say this before we just move on to the next, the third point, the third passage. That ought to stir up our worship, shouldn't it? Jesus is the chief worship leader. So if he's wanting our worship, and of course we worship him with the Father, but if he is the chief worship leader, if he is the one who is yearning and longing for the house of praise to God, if he's the one who's calling us and instructing us and exhorting us and equipping us and giving us gifts to the praise of God, ought we to respond? It's not the pastor. It's Jesus, who is the chief leader. Thirdly, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, our third passage. Hebrews 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 3. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. This is a 
re-emphasis of, in some ways, of the first point, but I want to put it this way. Jesus is a sympathizing high priest. Jesus is a sympathizing high priest now in heaven. Love verse 15 of chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And then chapter 5 verse 2. He can deal gently. Oh, Jesus is majestic. Oh, Jesus is firm and true. And he will not waver. He will not bend. He will not compromise. And he deals gently with us. He knows our weaknesses. He's acquainted with them. He knows the weakness of human flesh. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to live in this world with devils and demons and wicked and evil men and women. He knows sorrow. He knows discouragement. He knows loneliness. Oh, yes, he knows all those things. And because of that, when we come to him and our hearts are groaning and we cry out in our prayer, Oh, Lord, this is so hard. Oh, Lord, this hurts so badly. Oh, Lord, what am I to do? Oh, Lord, please help. When we pray kinds of prayers like that to Jesus, our high priest, we find one who says, essentially, I know. We don't find one who says, ah, you're too weak, get over it. Uh Uh-uh. That's not what we find. We find one who deals gently with us. What that means is that there's an inclination of the heart of Christ towards you in your weakness and in your temptation and in your suffering. He's not there hard, immovable, But he, even as you turn to him, his heart is inclined towards you, sympathizing because even though he is without sin, he himself has gone through the kind of suffering and even greater than you and I are going through. This would maybe be an appropriate place to read this little quote by... uh, one of my pastors who's with the Lord now, his name's John Owen, he was a Puritan, and commenting on this passage, uh, and, and I have to tell you, when I first preached through Hebrews, uh, my heart was utterly broken like it has never been broken before um, because of a, um, our family uh, difficult departure from our previous ministry in Maine, and all kinds of things going on there. I was, I was utterly broken. We were. And so to preach through the book of Hebrews and then uh, during those years uh, through these commentaries on Hebrews, uh, John Owen, the Puritan, he was like the pastor who was counseling me in those days, even though he's dead. But he says this. Just, I'll try to give you just a couple lines. See if you can pick up on this. He says concerning Jesus, reflecting on this aspect that he can sympathize with us and deal gently with us. He says about Jesus, he, Jesus, had 
particular experience of the weakness, sorrows, and miseries of human nature under the assault of temptations. And then this line concerning the temptations and the sufferings. He tried it, felt it, and will never forget it. His heart is hereby inclined to compassion and acquainted with what it is that will afford relief to us. But that line, concerning our sorrows, our sufferings, our trials, our temptations, he tried it, he felt it, and he will never forget it. That's your high priest, believer. A sympathizing high priest. But a sympathizing high priest, notice verse 14 of chapter 4, who is now in heaven, passed through the heavens. So you have one who is with you in sense that he really, truly knows. And yet you have one who has gone on before you and is in the very throne room of God. You have someone with that kind of compassion and sympathy for you, at, not, not next to the angels crying out, holy, holy, but up on the throne next to the Father. You have one who loves you and is inclined in his heart towards you like that. A sympathizing high priest. Fourth passage, just two more passages this morning. Chapter 4, verse 14. No, I'm sorry, that's, no, we just looked at that. Chapter 7, verse 22. Chapter 7, verse 22 through 27. We're just looking at Jesus this morning in the Word. Chapter 7, verse 22. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Fourthly, this morning, Jesus is our always living high priest, our always living high priest if you want to say eternal high priest that's fine too that works but i like that phrase always living always lives to intercede for us and the point here is that if you have a high priest who represents you before god and let's say he's good let's say he's in the rare category of of israel's history let's let's say he's actually a a righteous high priest a humble man fears god 
tends to everything that he's supposed to do. Let's say that he's actually compassionate towards you, the one of the people that he represents. And he's your high priest and, and uh, he serves out his, his years and then he dies. And then what are you going to do? Who do you have to represent you before God? Maybe it's some man that comes behind him. Maybe it's one of his sons who isn't so faithful and so on. Not so with Jesus. Because, verse 24, he continues forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. In other words, this reality that we're learning about, Jesus as our priest, having one who intercedes for us with God, one who can constantly communicate to us that we are known that we are understood, that we have with God a sympathetic, compassionate hearing. That's not a one-off. That's not a once in a while. You don't have to schedule that. That is every hour, every second, every day, every week, every month, every year. He always intercedes for us because he lives forever. And in Romans chapter Six, we learn that the life that Christ lives, he now lives to God. He, he lives to serve the Father and to serve you and me. And he loves this role. And he cherishes this role of constantly, tirelessly, sympathetically, compassionately, mercifully, gently, strongly, knowingly interceding for you with God and nothing is ever going to snuff out that intercession not happening because he died and rose and now he's the living one and he holds the keys of death and Hades the living one the sovereign over death is your high priest and he lives forever praise god fifthly and finally this morning this is a little longer section in chapter nine chapter nine verses 11 through 14 24 through 28 and then we'll dip and into chapter 10 a little bit and finish there Jesus, our high priest, offered a perfect once-for-all sacrifice. Uh, I've got bad news for you. You're bad. So some of the kids smiled on that, and adults are just like, (laughs) the kids know it. Kids know they're bad. Some of us as adults, well, some of us maybe forget that we're bad, or some of us... Some of us as adults think we're so bad that God couldn't possibly work with us. Well, assuming that you are contrite and willing to confess your sin and turn from your sin, no matter how bad you are, you're not bad enough to keep you from being reconciled to God. Your sin may be impressive. I don't mean to be cynical. I I, I mean that. Sin is terrible. Sin is uh, 
against a holy God. It defames God. It, it blasphemes his holy name. It, it mars the image of God in you. It, sin uses other people. Sin is just lame. It's ugly. It, it's dumb. It's foolish. It, it brings about heartache and sorrow and confusion and complexities and all kinds of consequences. And so sin is serious, you know that, and sin is very bad. And sin, in so much as it has our name on it, is ours, we're bad. So how could we possibly, how could we possibly be exhorted, as we are at the end of chapter 10, to go boldly before the throne of grace and in chapter 10, verse 19, to have confidence to enter the holy place. Have confidence to enter the holy place? The high priest had bells around the hem of his royal garments and a rope around his ankle as he went into the holy place. Why? Because... Sinful men in the presence of holy God die instantly. And if he happens to die in the holy of holies, there's no sinful man that can go in to get him or else he's going to die. And so hence the rope. That if the high priest who's representing you before God is a sinner, he goes in there and he is unclean or he, he's, he did something wrong. And he's a dead man. You can at least pull the rope out. Haul the body, the corpse, out from the holy place. Again, the gospel is not that God has changed. He is holy as he ever has been, and sin still incites the wrath of God. The gospel is that God has provided atonement for our sin and has propitiated his own just and righteous wrath in and through the death of of the very one who is our high priest, Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. He's talking about the heavenly tabernacle, that is, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, it's talking about here the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. You're bad. I'm bad. You're sinful. I'm sinful. But insofar as we are honest with God about our sin and our sinfulness, humble ourselves, and we go to Jesus, and we trust in Christ, we have in Christ an absolutely sufficient and efficacious sacrifice and eternal redemption. Utterly sufficient. It's awesome. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter into a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he, Jesus, would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he, Jesus, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Just one more passage, chapter 10, verse 11, same theme. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. That's a reminder that he's also king. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It's marvelous. Down in verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. One of the greatest differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, we are Protestants One of the greatest differences is that Roman Catholicism still has Jesus hanging on the cross and still has him offering up himself in the Mass weekly, daily, hourly because his sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient. And not only was his sacrifice not sufficient according to Roman Catholicism, but even Jesus as your mediator isn't sufficient because you need the great mediatrix Mary To the contrary, God's word is absolutely clear. And for the joy of sinners like you and like me, God has provided in his son, Jesus, our high priest, who offered up himself an atonement, a sacrifice for sin that does not need to be repeated. In fact, cannot be repeated for the sins of of his people have been sufficiently atoned for and God is just and having received the penalty seeing the penalty for our sins paid the wages of sin paid God is just and sees that our sins are accounted for in Christ the debt is paid the punishment is accomplished atonement is achieved and as Christ cried out in victory on the cross it is what? Praise God. Dear loved ones, this is our high priest. This is your high priest. And as you enter into 2024, whatever you have ahead of you, the anxieties, the difficulties, the concerns, whatever regrets you have about the past, you take them all to Jesus, your high priest, and you find in him a priest like no other. Amen? Let's go to him now. So God, we, we come to you in the name of your son, our Lord Jesus, who we receive from you as a gift, as our high priest. And Father, we want you to know that we love him. 
we worship him, one with you, the Father, because he is the exact representation of your nature. He is the radiance of your glory. So, Jesus, we worship you and we lift up to you our prayers unto the Father. And we ask, O oh God, once again, forgive us for our sins, for they are many and they are true and they are ugly. Forgive us for Jesus' sake. And we thank you that you do. And hear our prayer. Help us in our temptations today and in the coming year. Help us, O God, to turn from the empty, vain, bankrupt promises of the world to fix our eyes on our high priest. Help us to trust in your promises and to eagerly await for the kingdom. Help us, O God, in our sorrows and our sufferings and our perplexities. And in all of them, may your, may your Holy Spirit help us to remember again and again to come to Jesus, to go to Jesus, and in going to Jesus, O oh God our Father, to come before your very throne. Receive our praise and our prayer because we ask it in his name. Amen.